You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me as we meditate on this uh, very famous passage of scripture, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. The gospel writer Matthew gives us these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us today with authority, the same kind of authority as if Jesus were teaching us. And so let's hear together the word of Christ. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, retirement is very revealing. It reveals in so many ways what your idols are. I was talking to a guy the other day. I hadn't seen him since he retired. And I hadn't seen him um, recently. And, uh, but I just asked him, I said, you know, how's retirement going? And he said, oh, it's great. You know, I finally get to do whatever I want to, whenever I want to. And I just kind of started talking. I said, well, what are you doing? And, you know, he had a couple of horses. He had a dog. He said, well, I'm taking care of my horses and taking care of my dog. And then he started kind of complaining about his horses. And he said he really didn't have a very good dog. <laughs> and maybe he didn't have a very good life in general. It's very revealing. You know, I was talking to another guy the other day. He was a pastor. And in the same kind of way, he was re- terrified. He hadn't retired yet, but he was terrified of retirement. He was very honest. This was actually several months ago, but he was very honest. He said, you know, I, I uh, worked all my life to kind of build up this church and this platform. And it's terrifying to walk away from it. You know, all these people come every week, interested to hear what I have to say if I retire that's a scary thought. It's terrifying to think about what my life would be like. That Retirement's very revealing as to what your idols are. You know, marriage is like that, right? I never knew how self-centered, how inconsiderate I was before I got married. Having children is like that. But there's nothing more revealing in this life than the time when you are faced with the thought of death. That will really reveal you. That will really reveal what your idols are, what, what you're building your life on. There's this famous passage, uh, Leo Tolstoy, who, of course, you know, famously wrote War and Peace. He was a famous 19th century Russian author. But he has this very famous passage in a book that he wrote called A Confession. And he's interacting with this idea, and, and he says, you know, look, I, he, he is in his 50s, and he said, I had a wife who loved me. I had a large estate. With, uh, without much effort on my part, continued to increase, increase. He said, my name was respected. He's a famous author. He's very successful. He said, I had physical strength. But then he says this, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the very verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder, It was the question without which answering one cannot live, as I had found with my experience. 
and it was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? You know, he, he was saying that soon, everybody he knew would die, he would die, and not too long after that, everything that he had done would be forgotten about. He wouldn't be remembered anymore. People wouldn't know what he had given his whole life to. He goes on to say, nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten, and I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort? And then he has this little aside where he's like, how can man not fail to see this? Why isn't anyone thinking about this, says Tolstoy. And how can they go on living? This is what is so surprising. He's bothered that nobody else is bothered by this question. One can only live while he is intoxicated with life. But as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it's all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. He later says, no matter how often I may be told you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it, but live, I can no longer do that. I have already done that too long. I cannot now help seeing day and night going round and round and bringing me to death. That is all I see, for that alone is true. All else is false. Very revealing. And I think we all have to face that. When you die someday, what is this all worth? What have you really accomplished? And so people spend their whole lives avoiding the reality of death, not thinking about it. Or they have some moment like this, some moment like Tolstoy where, they're, where they really face it. If you were with us last week, we, we jumped into a series on virtue and virtues that we said not as a means to gain salvation, pursuing virtue not as a means to, to please God or to find favor with God, but virtue, pursuing virtue from a place of salvation, from a place of having found relationship with God, from a place of having found a oneness and a rightness with God. And we talked about the many means that God has given for us to pursue virtue, but one of those one of the ways that the Lord has given us, one of the tools that the Lord has given us to bend our hearts away from self and toward him, to bend our hearts away from what is wrong and toward what is good and right and virtuous is prayer. And so we started looking last week at the Lord's Prayer. And if you were here last week, we looked at this virtue, this, this central virtue of humility. We looked at the first phrase, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And if you really understand how holy and good and worthy is the name of the Lord, it won't just make you act more humbly, it will make you more humble. It will put you in your right place. When you understand the place of God and the worth of his name, it will help you understand the place of yourself and who you really are. But this week I want to look with you at the second section of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to talk to you today about the virtue of hope. Now hope is kind of one of the famous virtues in Christianity. Throughout church history, it's been one of the three central theological virtues, very famous list theological virtues. It comes from uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. The, the, the key virtues, the anchor theological virtues of the Christian life. 
And of course, these virtues aren't just true of people who know Christ. They, there's something, they're, they're, they're virtues that everyone really needs. Love is obvious, right? We, we know we need love. Faith, we, we have to believe in something. We have to anchor ourselves in something. But hope, you all need hope. You need hope to not become Tolstoy. You know, throughout the years, one of the things that I've been most surprised by in pastoral ministry is the amount of despair that exists in people, the amount of discouragement, the, the amount of depression that exists in people. This is one of kind of the key areas of my pastoral counseling, how much, how much people struggle with sadness and depression and despair. And again, I, I know there's a lot of factors in this, and I, I'm certainly not uh, against medication. I'm grateful Uh, for advances in medicine on all levels, but it's interesting to me that 30 years ago, just 30 years ago, in 1988, only one in 50 Americans are on some sort of antidepressant, and today that number is one in nine. Just in 30 years, we've seen that amazing movement, and what's even more interesting to me is that the older you get, the better chances you have of going on some sort of antidepressant medication. The highest percentage of people on medication for depression is people in the bracket over 65. It's, it's like Tolstoy, right? He hits 50. And all of a sudden he realized, I'm not going to live forever. This sadness came over him. He realizes his life was going to end. So I'm, I'm going to get to our text today in the Lord's Prayer. And I want to talk about the hope that is so, in, so embedded in this prayer But I want to begin talking a little bit about, and I know you're all glad you came today, I want to begin talking a little bit about some case studies of despair, what we can know about despair and depression. And uh, I'm actually going to give you some real case studies. I'm not going to use people's actual names, but I'm going to use just cases that I've come through in pastoral counseling to help us understand causes of despair. And the first cause, maybe the primary cause that I've seen through the years, is what I'll call the case of Jane, unfulfilled desires and unfulfilled dreams. It's one of the most interesting cases of despair that I've kind of come in contact with. It was a lady who wanted to become a missionary. She had this dream of becoming a missionary, but she got married to this man, and she started having children. And when she started having children, she became incredibly depressed now, her, she married a great man. He was a wonderful man. He was a godly man. And she had great, beautiful children. And so she was discouraged. She was even more depressed with herself that she was depressed because she was supposed to be a great wife and mother who loved her children. And she came to realize, looks like the, we're almost time for class change here at Sutton Middle School. <laughs> but she came to realize that she wanted to do this great thing, to become a missionary, do this thing that was noble and great. And, and here she was as a mother, changing diapers, cleaning up messes all the time. You know, she'd read all these biographies about Lottie Moon and uh, Ann Judson and Elizabeth Elliot, who changed the world, and that's what she thought she was supposed to do. And on top of it, all of that, her husband was incredibly successful in business, which you think should be good, but in her mind, she had kind of built this ideology of, no, the, the noble life, the, 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 the strong life is someone who's living by faith out on the mission field. 
But the way that she worked herself out of depression was that she realized that this missionary work, as noble as it is, as wonderful as it is, it had become an idol to her. It was what was going to make her special and great. And this idol had started stealing the joy of the place that she was in. She was, in a very real sense, hoping more in the work of Christ than she was in Christ himself. It was an unfulfilled dream or desire, and she couldn't make peace with the place where the Lord had her. The second case, though, and this is something I see, the case, we'll call this the case of Jill, and this is the case of injustice. Another thing that I see throughout pastoral counseling is someone who's experienced some great injustice, some great wrong, and it creates incredible brokenness, incredible pain in their life. And I had a case of a, of a woman, she had been victimized by, by men many times in her life. But in the process of this, she had grown very cynical. Uh, she found it hard to believe in anyone. She had internalized her pain. She wouldn't share her pain with anyone. It was even amazing that she was even kind of coming out in this way in pastoral counseling. And when I met Jill, what had happened that was so interesting is, is these external injustices that she was facing had led to a, a lack of trust, a cynicism in her own heart uh, that, that really led her to be, to, to be making some foolish decisions of her own. She, she began making decisions that were bringing on pain to herself. And what she realized was, the thing that brought her out of this is that she realized she didn't trust God. She only trusted in herself. And herself, her own hopes, herself was too wounded, too weak to ever hold on to the hopes that she had. The third case is what I'll call the case of John that causes depression. And this is the case of, of sin and particularly hidden sin. I knew John. He was uh, in our church in Birmingham. And uh, he was very, very involved in the church. Uh, but he was also very erratic. Like we would be in a meeting and he would just leave the meeting kind of unannounced. He had some strange behavior and he would talk to me about depression and anxiety. And I, I'll confess, I probably wasn't the pastor I needed to be. I didn't really ask. I didn't ask questions that I should have asked. But eventually in the course of our relationship, John got married. And his wife discovered this, some horrible hidden sins in his life that he had kept from everybody. And all of a sudden, it came out. And some of the stuff he was doing was even illegal. It was horrible stuff, and it was devastating for John. But when that happened, light shined into his life. And what started happening when light of confession, when the light of honesty started coming in, the anxiety, the depression, these things started healing in his life. It was the conviction and discipline that he was enduring was actually an evidence of grace in his life. Now, there's a lot of causes for depression, for despair, but these are certainly three. Three that I've seen a lot in my life, three that may connect with some of you. So I know you might be thinking, okay, where's he going with this? How does praying the Lord's Prayer give us hope? How does praying the Lord's Prayer help us overcome these causes of despair? Well, let's just look at the prayer again. Your kingdom come, or you know, traditionally, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we continue, I've, I've got two main points to the sermon. First of all, praying your kingdom come. Praying thy kingdom come, and I have two sub points to this. And the first one is, 
we have to understand, if, this, if praying this prayer, thy kingdom come, is ever going to bring you hope, the first thing you need to understand is what the kingdom is. You know, Matt talked about this a little bit. What is the kingdom? What are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God? What are we saying when we say, your kingdom come? Well, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's obviously talking about the kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew in particular, he is saying the kingdom is here, the kingdom is present. He's talking about the kingdom all throughout that gospel. But I think a very instructive place, a very helpful place to, to answer this question is in Luke 17. Look at this passage with me. Luke 17, 20 through 21. It says, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, right? So the kingdom of God is here. Now, I don't have the rest of the passage, but if you read the rest of Luke 17, Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God in these big ways. He says, it'll be like when the flood came. It'll be like when Sodom and Gomorrah happened, when God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So in this first part, he says, you'll never be able to recognize the kingdom of God. It's already in the midst of you. But in the second part of the chapter, he says, when it comes, it's going to be like the flood. When it comes, it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll never be able to miss it. Which you might say, well, what is this? That, that, that's even more confusing. What is the kingdom of of Christ. And it gets to what Matt was talking about earlier, this, this already not yet of the kingdom. And I think simply put, the kingdom of Christ is the reign of Christ. The kingdom of Christ, the best way to understand this biblically, the kingdom of Christ is the reign of Christ. One day, Jesus will reign like the flood. One day, he'll reign like Sodom and Gomorrah. One day, he will reign and no one will miss it. It will be so visible and so real. No one will doubt that the kingdom has come. One day Jesus will rule in the cosmos and his rule will be fully known. But the kingdom, as Jesus said, is already in your midst. It's already here. And what he means by that is I am already reigning right here and now. And he is reigning here. The kingdom of Christ is the reign of Christ. And as Jesus reigns in your heart, even right now, even though it's not as visible as the flood, as he reigns in your heart and in your life right now, that's evidence that the kingdom is among us. The kingdom is in our midst and the kingdom is in our midst. And the kingdom is going forward in our midst. It's the reign of Christ. N.T. Wright says, what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus begins to reign in your heart now the way that he will one day reign in all of the cosmos. Is that true of your life? Is Jesus, is the way that you're hoping Jesus will reign, is he reigning that way right now in you? That is the kingdom. That is the kingdom that is coming, but it's the kingdom that's here. It's the kingdom that will heal you, that will change you, that will actually give you hope. So that's what the kingdom is. What about what the kingdom does? What does the kingdom do? And particularly, how does the kingdom live or how does the kingdom give us hope, lead to hope? You know, one day in the kingdom, there will be no unfulfilled desires. One day in the kingdom, there'll be no injustice. One day in the kingdom, there will be no sin. All of your desires, 
All of your dreams, all of your desires for importance, all of your desires to be remembered like Tolstoy, your desire to go on, your desire to be loved. I want you to hear this. All of those desires are good desires, but they are so often misplaced desires. All of the desires that you have to, to be loved, to be important, to be remembered, all of these desires are good desires. They're just often misplaced desires. You have a desire to be important. That is a good desire. And God has given a proper fulfillment to that desire. But it won't be fulfilled in the kingdoms of this world. That desire to be important won't ever be fulfilled by wealth or by position here on earth. It wasn't meant to be fulfilled in that way. It will only be fulfilled when you find your place as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if you are in Christ, here's the importance that God has given you. He's called you a son. He's called you daughter. He has said, reign with me forever and forever. There is no higher position than that. Your desire to do something of importance or to, to have a pers- uh, to purpose in life, that is a good desire. You should desire that. Just don't misplace that desire. You know, you know some people... Here, God has called you to do big things that we would look at and say, wow, that was so big. But here's the deal. Listen, listen. Don't let big be the enemy of obedient. What God has really called you to be, to really find purpose, is to obey him. And sometimes people obey him by becoming a missionary and reaching an unreached people group and people write biographies about them. But sometimes people obey the Lord by doing very seemingly mundane things that change everything. Just look at the Bible. Sometimes Jesus uses kings. Sometimes he uses shepherds. Sometimes he uses carpenters. Sometimes he uses widows. Sometimes he uses people that are just seemingly so mundane to do very small things. And those are the things that change everything. Don't let big be the enemy of obedience. You want to find purpose in life, the purpose that lasts forever? Obey the Lord whose kingdom is forever. See, all the desires you have, your desire for importance, your desire to be loved, they aren't bad. They're just often misplaced. If you place them in the kingdoms of this world, they will never satisfy you. That's why no one is satisfied. This is why Tolstoy, who had everything, who had a wife who loved him, who had health, who had people reading all of his books, he was always haunted by death because he knew that those things couldn't ultimately fulfill him. This is a famous passage from C.S. Lewis, but you've probably read this before, but if you haven't, it says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. All of your desires are good and right, and there is a proper fulfillment with them, but just don't misplace those desires. But it goes beyond this. In the kingdom, not only will desire be fulfilled, there will be no injustice in the kingdom. Jesus has settled every account now, a lot of people don't like to talk about the justice of God, and I understand because sometimes to think about the justice of God in light of our own sin is a terrifying thing to think about. If it weren't for the grace of God that he shows us in Christ, to think about a totally just, a totally holy, a totally righteous God, to think about our lives as sinners and disobedient men and women in light of him is a terrifying thing to think about. But in another sense, 
to think about the justice of God is the most soothing and calming thing that you could ever think about. God is just, which means this, there will one day be no injustice. He will settle every account. As we said in the statement earlier, he will make all sad things come untrue. This is the perfect justice of Jesus. This is the ultimate reign of Christ. And so what does it mean if Jesus is reigning and ruling in your life now? It, should be, it means that we should be agents of justice, that we should be agents of what is true and right and good, workers for justice and hope now, and not with despair, not, as, not with some sort of victim status, but with hope, knowing that all of these things are going to be worked out, knowing that even the bad things, even the most unjust things will one day be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. That's what it means that the kingdom is alive in us now. But lastly, in the kingdom, beyond all of this, there will be no sin, you see? There's no unfulfilled desires in the kingdom. There's no injustice in the kingdom. There's no sin in the kingdom. As in the case of John, your sin will always find you out. Your hidden sins will always find you. It may not be until the day of judgment, but they'll find you. And they'll always destroy you. I just want to warn you with this. You know, we, I went to a conference this week with some of our uh, staff and uh, Matt Chandler, who some of y'all know, preached, and I've heard him actually give this illustration before, but it's a really good illustration. He talked about, you know, watching this video about, you know, you ever see these shows where, like, people raise up a lion, and they have, like, the lion as their pet, and then the lion kills them, you know, and everybody's like, we're so shocked, you know. How could, you know, Leo or whatever turn? And, you know, it, the reason is because it's a lion. And the only instinct of a lion is to destroy and to devour, and to eat, to feed himself. And that's the same instinct that every sin has. I just want to warn you, you may think you have your sins tamed. You may think you've been raising this sin since it was a little cub. And it won't destroy you. Just keep in mind, it's a lion. Its instinct is not for your good. Its instinct is not to bring you joy and peace. It will crush you. But in the kingdom, this is the beauty of the kingdom, there's no sin. There's no sin. Christ has conquered all sin. He's done away with all sin. This is the amazing hope of the kingdom. You know, we talk about this in theological terms. Whenever we talk about salvation, there's always an order. There's a process of salvation. And, you know, the first kind of stage of salvation that we talk about is justification, to be, to be made righteous, to be declared righteous. No penalty for sin before Almighty God, to be justified before the presence of God. And if you're in Christ and you've been justified by faith, then you move into this process that we talk about in Christianity called sanctification, where the power of sin loses its grips on you. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where, the, where, where sin that so, that so long had its clutches in you loses its power. Christ is more beautiful than that sin. The, the lion loses its grip on your heart. This is the beauty of sanctification where the power of sin is being defeated. But, but the, the beauty of the ultimate hope that we have in Christ of glorification is that there's no presence of sin. There is no sin. There's no possibility of sin. 
There's no possibility of an evil thought. There's no possibility of an evil deed. Everything is made pure and right by Jesus, and this means total freedom and total rest. This is the hope of the kingdom. No anxiety, no despair, total peace. You see, when you realize thy kingdom come, when you realize this is the kingdom in Christ that you have been invited into, it brings enormous hope and it brings enormous peace. You know, there's a great study on this. The, the, when you think about despair, when you think about uh, hopelessness, there was few times in history, there was a few people in history that had to face despair and hopelessness greater than uh, slaves in the United States in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. I mean, just massive despair, massive hopelessness. Even little thoughts, we talk about unfulfilled desires, well, it was very hard for slaves to have any desires. You know, even simple desires like being married, well, you could be sold off and be ripped away from your family. You know, nobody in slave quarters in the Old South was dreaming about where they'd go to college someday and what they'd do with their lives someday. It was a time of just... It should have been a time of amazing despair, amazing pain. But it's interesting, there was a guy named Howard Thurman. He was the first black dean of uh, chapel at Boston University. One of the first people of, uh, one of the first black men to ever hold any such a post, a dean of a major American college. And Thurman writes a lot about this idea, but he writes about his grandmother. He was the child, his grandmother was a slave. And he talks about all that his grandmother taught him. He says this, in in the first place, she was strong, positive, self-contained human being. She wasn't in despair. There was nothing in her life that would have led her to be hopeful, yet she was strong, she was positive, she was self-contained. Her life was full of tragedies. Hunger, cold, the death of some of her children, but she had built-in controls. And she always quoted a preacher that she had that said to her, you are not slaves, you are God's children. And Thurman went on to say, and you know when my grandmother said that, she would unconsciously straighten up, head high, chest out, and a faraway look would come on her face. And he said, this little grandson did these wonderful things, great American thinker. He said, now that transmitted an idiom to me. There was nothing that could happen in my environment that could ever touch this. It gave me my identity. So I didn't have to wait for the revolution. I've never been in search of identity. I think the explanation is that everything I've ever felt and worked on and believed was founded on this kind of private, almost unconscious autonomy that did not seek vindication in my environment because it was in me. It had been given to me, you see. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, I didn't need to find an identity from the outside. I already had an identity. That's what my grandmother said to me. I wasn't a slave. I was a child of God. I'd been given identity that couldn't be shaken. I'd been given a hope that couldn't be shaken no matter the external circumstances, as horrible as they were, as treacherous as they were. You know, Thurman writes a, lo- a lot about the, uh, the old spiritual songs of the 19th, 18th and 19th century. And he says, just listen to these songs. They're anchored in such hope. 
They're anchored in such hope. They're anchored in vindication. They're anchored in the hope that even though everything around the slave was going horribly, there was poise, there was strength. Even though there was incredible pain that his own grandmother faced, incredible injustice, she had tremendous hope. Don't you see the strength of hope? Hope in the kingdom. Don't you see what this can give you? Don't you see what God wants you to have? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Are you praying this? Are you looking to the kingdom? Do you have hope in the kingdom? If you find yourself looking to the kingdom of your job, it will always leave you in despair. If you find yourself looking to the kingdom of your dreams, these grand dreams that you have, this is what's going to make me important. If you find yourself looking to the kingdom of your sin that is deceiving you, you will be crushed by that. But if you find yourself looking to the kingdom of Christ, you will have enormous poise, enormous strength, enormous hope. Thy kingdom come. You see this prayer? The second part we have to get to, thy will be done. What does it mean to pray, thy will be done? And this prayer teaches us the hope of obedience, the hopefulness of obedience. Thy will be done is an interesting prayer in Scripture. It's the only prayer that we have from the Lord's Prayer that Jesus prayed that we have record of Jesus actually praying. And Jesus prayed the whole Lord's Prayer, but we have record outside of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture of Jesus praying this particular prayer, thy will be done. And remember where it is? We find it in the garden. Remember the story Jesus had gotten his disciples together and he said, guys, please just stay up with me. Stay up with me. Watch and pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. And of course they fall asleep. And he wakes them up and he says, watch and pray that you won't fall into temptation and they fall asleep. Watch and pray, guys. But Jesus goes out into the garden and it's an amazing story. It's a fascinating story. It's interesting on so many levels. Jesus knew that he was going to die. I mean, throughout his ministry, he says, I'm going to die. He even knew that he was going to be raised again. He, He said this throughout his ministry, yet in this moment, death comes crashing in on him. The weight of his death comes crashing in on him. He's, he's overcome by this thought. Remember, he says he's in despair. He, he begins sweating droplets of blood, and you have to ask yourself, he knew he was going to die. It's not that this moment is a surprise to him. What happened in that moment? And, and the answer is in Jesus' first prayer, which is, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup you look through all the Old Testament, the cup is always referred to as the cup of God's wrath. In fact, in Jeremiah, it's referred to as the cup that brings about staggering. The cup of God's wrath, that when it's really understood, it makes you stagger, it makes you fall, it overwhelms you. And this is exactly what's happening here. In this moment, in the garden, when no one else is around, God is showing Jesus the cup. He showed Jesus how bad this grief was going to be, how deep this pain was going to be, what it would really mean to face the wrath of God. You know, Jonathan Edwards has this sermon where he talks about this, he talks about the cup, and he says, you know, the disciples are asleep, there's no guards around, Jesus is all by himself in the garden, God shows him the cup. He shows him what it means to be forsaken and crushed and bruised. 
God showed him the full weight of his own wrath that was about to be poured out on him, and he could have run. No one was there, but he didn't. He obeyed. He drank the cup. And you know why? Why did Jesus drink the cup? Why didn't he run? He was overwhelmed. He was overcome. Why did he obey? He obeyed because of another cup. He had just told his disciples, I will not drink this cup with you again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. One day, we're going to be united. One day, this kingdom will be fulfilled. One day, we will be drinking together. And the author of Hebrews says it was for the joy the joy of that, the joy of that reunion, the joy of his people being experiencing salvation, the joy of his forever kingdom that he endured the cross, that he drank the cup, that he endured this great pain. To quote Spurgeon, it seemed as if all hell were put into his cup. He seized it and in one tremendous draft of love. Love for his disciples, love for his people, love for his church. He drank damnation dry. And so this is the hope of obedience. This is the hopefulness of obedience. Not your obedience, not my obedience, the obedience of Christ. Don't you see, this is our great sin. You know what our sin, you know the reason that we needed Jesus to go to the cross is because we never say thy will be done. The way of Adam The way of man is to say, my will be done. My way, my life, my dreams, my sin. These are the things that I want to cling to. This is the way of Adam. Adam says, my way, but Jesus says, thy way. This is the hopefulness of obedience, but not our obedience. You trust in your own justification, you will be crushed every time. The hope of the gospel is to trust in the obedience of Christ. He says, thy way. In 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul talks about two Adams, the first Adam, the second Adam, he, and he brings different you know, barriers out of this, but this is a good way to think about it. The first Adam, which is Adam. Adam was in a garden. The first Adam, which is like us. Adam was in a garden, and God told him, obey me about the tree. Don't eat the tree And if you obey me, I will give you life. I will be with you. And you know what Adam did? He didn't obey. He said, no, my way, my will be done. But the second Adam was in a garden too. And God said, hey, obey me about the tree. And he showed him the tree. And unlike the first Adam, obedience here didn't come with life. It came with death. And in fact, God said something to the second Adam that he's never said before. He said, obey me and I will curse you. Obey me and I will forsake you. Obey me and I will ruin you. And the amazing thing is this, Jesus obeyed. Thy will be done. And such is the hopefulness of obedience. If you are hoping in your own obedience, if you are hoping in your own longevity, if you are hoping in your own ability to please God, in your own ability to last, you know what you'll become? You'll become like Tolstoy in ruin, despair. 
But the hope of the Christian message is that another hope has been given to you and given to me in the obedience of Christ, the one who has always obeyed, even when it meant death, even when it meant being forsaken by God, even when it meant death in our place for something that he'd never done, died with, because of joy, the joy of being united with you. Jesus prayed, thy will be done so that you can too, don't you see? He's called you into obedience. He's called you into a kingdom where there is no unfulfilled desire. He's called you into a kingdom where there is no despair. He's called you into a kingdom where there is no sin. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything broken will be restored. A kingdom where every tear is justified. A kingdom where every wrong will be made right. Believe this. Pray this. Look to Jesus and his kingdom and have a hope. And to quote Paul, this hope does not disappoint. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kingdom. The kingdom that is here, the kingdom that is coming. I pray that the kingdom even now would come upon our hearts, that the reign of Christ would be full in our hearts and real in our hearts. And in that reign and fullness, Lord, I pray that we would experience hope, real hope, hope that overcomes despair, hope that overcomes the discouragement of an unfulfilled dream, hope that overcomes sin, Lord, capture our heart with the beauty of obedience, hope that overcomes injustice, hope that overcomes all things, Lord. Do this work now, in us and through us, by the power of your Son, because of the obedience of your Son. In whose name we pray.